Hey, Richard Gottlieb. Chris Burns. How you doing? I'm doing fine, my friend. How about you? You know, I'm doing really well as well. I think that the vaccine is in sight, and even though they canceled the May Toy Fair, people seem to be upbeat and enthusiastic as they're talking about what's ahead in 2021. And we're really excited because we've got a great guest today. But first, this is the Playground Podcast with me, Chris Byrne, and my co-host, Richard Gottlieb. We are brought to you by Global Toy Experts, the toy guy, and marketing and media agency, Chizcom. And today, we are really excited to reach across the Atlantic all the way to Italy and to welcome Michael Rothling, who is the VP of Demian, a company you may or may not know that's got 60-plus years in the business. It's a family-run company. It was started by Michael's grandfather. And we're just excited to hear about everything that's been going on with you and, and where things are going. Michael, welcome, and thanks for joining us. Thank you so much, Chris. Hi, Richard. Thank you so much for having me here in your amazing podcast. Uh, and, and Michael's joining us by Zoom. So let's start out. Tell us how you got into the business. We kind of think you were born into it. Chris, he's toy industry royalty. Tell us how you got into the toy business and a little bit about your company history for people who don't know it. I'm representing the company Dimian. I'm the vice president of Dimian. And I am um, the third generation of this amazing company. We are producer or manufacturer of dolls, uh, doll strollers, and interactive toys. And you know, I'm getting. I was really born into it in this company because the company was founded from my grandfather, from my Italian grandfather, and then was taking over from my mother and my father. And so. I was uh, studying, my studies was basically in Hong Kong, made in Hong Kong at the G German Swiss International College in Hong Kong. So I'm half German, half Italian. And um, yeah, and I live in Hong Kong. And during the pandemic and everything that it's happening, I am living in Europe, in Italy. So I can follow more closely all my distributors and all my clients, you know, from here. Chris, he's got kind of a Romeo and Juliet story with his parents. Yeah, exactly. How your parents met. My father, Dirk, was a former Daft creation director. And my mother was uh, a producer of uh, strollers in Italy. And they was meeting up themselves uh, in Nuremberg Toy Fair. From that point, uh, my father then after, you know, Daft company was sold to a Munich company. And my father was uh, opening up the first uh, German offices of Tiger Toys. And Tiger Toys at that time was then sold to Hasbro. Then my mother and my father was saying, what we do now, we make our own business. So my father was bringing the whole total know-how of dolls into, into the company, into Demian company. And my mother was bringing all her style, her, all her Italian taste, we are really a classic niche market. So this was really the winning point between my mother and my father, the German gentleman from a German doll company, together with a fantastic Italian lady that was bringing this uh, hint of design. And you're currently in about 130 countries around the world, from what I can tell, but you're not a big presence in the United States? 
Exactly, yeah. We haven't a big presence in the United States. We have countries like all Europe, basically. We have distributors, we have retailers in Europe. We have also big toys companies that they are uh, producing by us because we we also make OEM business for them, really OEM products. So we have a lot of production ongoing, of course, in China. And we have our own line with more than 300 SKUs. And we was we are set up in Europe, Latin America, and the uh, MENA region, the Emirates, and in Africa, because we have also 35 recorded languages. What I mean by 35 recorded languages is that all our products, dolls and interactive plush mainly, can speak the language of the country. So we have uh, a French-speaking doll, we have a Latvia-speaking doll. We have this Anglo-Saxon taste because we sell to New Zealand, Australia, and also the UK. We've talked a lot with people in the United States about the impact of the pandemic. And certainly from over here, we've watched how Italy's been affected, of course, but, but all of Europe. How has the pandemic affected your business? You mentioned that you were back from Hong Kong in Italy. How have you been affected and how are you moving forward? The pandemic situation was terrible for everybody in the industry. And it will be also more terrible in, for me in 2021 because, yeah, the vaccine is there. But now, as all we know, container uh, costs are getting really, really high. So the distributors are a little bit, all our clients are a little bit very, very not so optimistic on that. So basically, um, yes, I was moving from Hong Kong to Italy. I present all the uh, showroom, my Hong Kong showroom through Zoom calls now or through Skype or for 360 degrees uh, webcams that we have installed in our showroom. So, you know, it's more easy to follow all our distributors, European distributors with a European time. But I go often also to Germany to visit all my German customers. The pandemic, you know, it was sitting a lot, the toy retailers especially, because as all we know, Europe, it's made from really solid toy retailers against other countries, against maybe America or the UK, because we sell a lot to the UK, but through mail orders, you know, to catalog or to Amazon. With the closure of the toy shops, we were seeing really that, yeah, it's picking up a little bit the internet base of, of customers, but not that much. Nevertheless, we have seen also kids playing in a different way and having a different also taste during the lockdown or during the pandemic. They was close at home and they don't have any friends. So the most best companion, it's a doll or a plush. So, you know, the fantasy of the girl, it's to have a, a, make a tea time with their favorite doll or to have a story told from the plush, uh, from our interactive plush, for example. Uh, so, you know, this is a little bit the classic toys. It's getting much more than the collectible toys in this moment, what we see now in Europe. Apart from that, uh, what I was saying before, uh, container costs. Now, uh, in this moment, the container costs are against last year, seven to eight times higher in uh, cost than last year. 
So people in Europe that it's buying FOB from us, uh, they are a little bit cautious. Um, they are cautious and we have also opening up now a production made in Europe of dolls, special finishing of dolls with a nice face, with a good quality, because also the people want to have something special in the toy uh, market, made in Europe toys. This is what we see the tendency will going on through. And also daily items like uh, first price point buggy or first price point doll uh, that we do normally in private label ranges or uh, on our own brand, it will suffer a lot because the container costs are inflating the cost on, on itself of the item. Also, the toy retailers are going away from these promotional dolls and plush. They want to have also a differentiation from the Amazon or from the uh, internet. And so they will buy then something more special. So they want to have a unique product and not more a promotional product. Michael, you mentioned earlier that the Anglo-Saxon countries how do you think, for instance, an Italian child's taste in toys might be different than, say, a German child or an Australian child or yeah. even a Chinese child? You know, it depends. Normally, in the 90s, we were seeing always that they, uh, there was not taking place the globalization, you know? And now with the globalization, with Instagram, with YouTube and all those kind of platforms that, uh, or TikTok that children are using now, uh, from, Ameri from an American child to a Chinese child or from an Italian child, uh, they like to have same, you know, it have the same taste, everybody. But it's not actually like that. Because at the end, if we think dolls and classic toys are bought at the end, not from the child, but also the, end, the, the first consumer that approach a doll or that approach a toy, it's a mother. The child and the, the child is asking for the toy or for the doll that sees on the catalog or on, on the advertisement campaign. But the mother at the end is the last choice or the first choice is the mother that is doing on the shelf. So really the mother have in any way, uh, it's um, was not is always having the taste of the year's 90s, you know? Very <laughs> <laughs> so, it's, it's, it's very, very good. Yeah. Very good. Those classic toys are taken and chosen from the mother or from the even from the grandmother. But at the end, it's always the choice of the mother that was in the year's 90s. So in the year's 90 or in the 80s, uh, the globalization was not taking place. So the taste is always a classic taste in any way and related to the country. I know that we've got a, a Brexit deal now, and I know you do, yeah. do business with the UK. How has that affected your business? But the business in the UK, I need to tell you, it's more a mail order thing against a supermarket uh -huh. um, or against a, a distributor. So in this moment, we see that the Brexit is not hitting that much our business. There's no Spiel Baron Messe this year. There's no Hong Kong show. All of us normally would be in Hong Kong right now. And so you're doing presentations from your own offices. And you mentioned that you purchased 360 degree cameras. 
Yeah. Uh, you it sounds like you've stepped up your technology. So how do you find the experience of presenting uh, new products digitally versus in person? It's difficult. The first webcam presentation that we was doing in our Hong Kong showroom uh, was in June. And um, now uh, it's starting this kind of 3D showroom uh, presentations with portal, with 3D. But I think, or we think more, that the webcam in any way or the Zoom calls uh, to present products, uh, it's much more nicer than the 3D digital showroom. When you say three-dimensional, are you is this some special technology, that, yeah. like uh, augmented reality or virtual reality? Exactly. The customer can experience to be in the showroom, a little bit like Google Maps. For us, it's very, very difficult because you don't have nobody in the showroom that explain to you what is making the product, what it's doing, how big it is the product. You know, the virtual uh, presentations, we need to do them because we are forced to do them. But we know everybody that the toy and uh, uh, to see the toy in reality or to see even the first uh, mock-up uh, of toy, um, it's much more uh, nicer you can immediately understand if it's good or not for, for, the, for the client. And you can also recognize their reaction <laughs> the client face. Right, you know? exactly. Demian has worked in the European market for more than 60 years. What are some yeah. of the things that a company wanting to enter the European market should really understand that makes this market distinct? You know, a new company, or a, like we can tell an American or Canadian toy company that enter into the uh, European market. First of all, you need to find a good international sales representative that knows exactly who is the biggest player in, I don't know, France or in uh, uh, UK or whatever it is. And also the price structure also, because, you know, some European countries have some different economical situation. Some it's more driven by internet, like for example, Germany, it's really a market where it's driven only by internet. Against Italy that is, or France that is driven by uh, retailers. So, you know, those kind of things, a virgin company in Europe need to have a European sales director that know, that have a know-how to enter correctly in all the markets. America or Canada or New Zealand, if you want to do a product that it's speaking, it's very easy. You do a product that speaks English, like we speak now. French people, Italian or German, they love to have a product that speaks into your language. They want to have also educative now uh, toys because the schools are closed and everything is uh, closed down here. They want to buy really now educative toys for their children. You've done such great work in Europe and around the world. Do you have plans to enter the U.S. market? Yes, we have plans. Again, we need to find the correct persons that fall in love into the products. Uh, maybe distributor, maybe a good sales representative, uh, maybe a company uh, that want to create something OEM with us. Uh, so we are really, really open to uh, every business. And we have an incredible 
stuff between Hong Kong, Germany, and Italy that can really make uh, all the efforts to enter into America, hitting every price point or doing all those kind of things to enter into America in the correct way. So, Michael, we're going to ask you the question that we ask all our guests on the Playground podcast. We want you to tell us a secret. Yeah. So a special secret, and it's a really personal secret. (laughs) (laughs) That's a first. We love it. (laughs) (laughs) It's a really personal secret, but also a little bit sad secret. So I don't know if I, I want to tell, but yes, I tell it to you. So I was creating in 2015 an amazing line with my designers in, uh, in Italy of animatronic plush. And uh, it's really, really sad. And in 2016, I wanted to present this product to my, to my dear father. Suddenly, my dear father was passing away with a heart attack. He was very, very young. He was 52. And uh, so, and I was with my mother alone and we was thinking, okay, let's do the plush or let's leave completely the plush category because it's very, very difficult to enter in from purely dolls and doll stroller to an uh, uh, interactive plush category. So we was telling, yes, come on, let's do that. And I think there was a blessing from my father up there. And the plush category was one of the best-selling lines until now. That's a nice story. That's a great story. Anybody out there who wants to know more about your company, spell the name of the company and then give the web address. The company name is Dimian. Dimian, and you can find all the products of Dimian under www.dimian.com. Dimian, D-Y-I-M-I-A-N. I think this has been a, a really outstanding interview. I think that uh, Michael not just not only shared with us his insights on his markets, but I think also some, uh, some global insights that are highly valuable. Thank you so much, really. You know, family business, it's really something that it's a part of your life. So, you know, it's very, very difficult. If you're born into the toy business, it's very difficult to go out. And, and it's always a part of you. Well, Michael Rothling of Demian, Vice President of Demian, thank you so much for spending the time with us today. We certainly appreciate it. And as Richard said, this was a great interview. And, and thank you for the time. This is the Playground Podcast, and we'll be right back with the end cap. And now we come to the part of the show that we call the end cap, where Richard and I toss around some ideas about what's going on in the toy industry. And while sales were up, Richard, you're reporting that returns were as well. What's up with that? <laughs> <laughs> you know, Chris, I maybe other people were not startled, but just in the United States, and this is not the toy industry, this is all, all returns in 2020, came to $428 billion, that's billion with a B. Now, just to, to give everybody a chance to kind of get their, their head around that, uh, the toy industry did $20.9 billion. That's about 20 times more in returns than the entire toy industry in the United States did in retail sales last year. So I don't know about you, but I, I find that uh, kind of shocking. 
Uh, well, it is shocking, but I, I do think it has a lot to do with internet shopping and people buying things that they couldn't see and touch and feel. And so they get it home and it's like, eh, it didn't really, you know, fulfill what I wanted. So most of the online retailers have made it really easy to return things. And the good news for the toy industry, though, is people don't usually return toys. You know, it's like the kids kids don't like it. They go, okay, well, that was a bummer. But they don't often take it back unless it's a high-end thing. I've heard a lot of VR systems going back because kids don't use it or parents don't like it. But if it's not a big-ticket item, generally people don't uh, return the toy. So that's good for us. But but you have some insights about what returns can mean for the retailers. Well, well, Chris, uh, I thought it was really interesting. In the article, it mentioned uh, Mark Matthews, who's the National Retail Federation's Vice President of Research. Uh, and he said, quote, retailers view the return process as an opportunity to further engage with customers as it provides additional points of contact for retailers to enhance the overall consumer experience, end quote. Now, Chris, what I find interesting here is that Walmart has announced uh, on certain types of products that they don't want them back. So maybe they, maybe Walmart's no so, not so hot on that uh, further engagement, or are they just because the cost of business or having people ship products back, particularly online, is, is too costly. Well, I think one of the things that happens is if you get something wrong, I've gotten the incorrect thing from Amazon and I've said, do you want me to ship it back? And they say, no, we'll just send you a new one. So it does it does minimize processing costs and return costs and, and, and issues like that. But I do think that it's very good for the retailers to accept returns or have a good policy because as you read reviews for products, I'll see oh my gosh, they had a horrible time with the company trying to get a return, or they had a great time with the company getting a return. I'm not sure if that's a defining issue, whether I buy from a company or not, but it's nice to know that a company is taking care of its consumers. This report was, I, did, I neglected to say, was from the National Retail Federation. And they, they always said for every $1 billion in sales, the average retailer incurs $106 million in merchandise return. So that's uh, 10.6%, I believe. Wow. Yeah. Also, what I thought was uh, interesting was 5.9% of, of all returns were fraudulent. <laughs> now, no surprise. That was $25.3 billion now in, in fraudulent returns. And now, again, just to give perspective, remember, we as the industry, the toy industry, had $20.9 billion in total retail sales, uh, which means those returns were actually 20% more than we took in. I don't know. It's pretty astonishing uh, to me. And and by the way, just so, so people out there, to, to your point earlier that people don't bring back toys, we are not among the biggest offenders. The biggest offenders are automotive, apparel, home improvement, and housewares. Buyer's remorse does not seem to be a big part of toy consumption. And I think that comes down to the fact that so many toy purchases are made in response to a child's request. So if the child's disappointed or the toy doesn't fulfill its promise, they at least got the request fulfilled. And I think that that has a value in and of itself. So anyway, Chris, like it or not, returns are a part of doing business. And as they've been saying for well over 100 years, the customer is always right. 
and uh, apparently to the tune of $428 billion. And I think that's going to just keep going when you've got companies like Zappos where people will order two or three pairs of the identical shoes to try one that works and send the other two back. And I think that, that that facility with returns is going to continue to be part of good retail practice as we continue to evolve. And we're continuing to evolve here at the Playground Podcast. I'm Chris Byrne with Richard Gottlieb, and we are brought to you by global toy experts, the toy guy and marketing and media company, Chizcom. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.